Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Today to the Fatal Conceits podcast, Mr. Dominic Frisby, who is a British author, comedian, and investor. Uh, he is also, as he and I have just been discussing, a fellow Substacker. So make sure that you check out his flying Frisbee articles over on Substack. Uh, right out the gate, Dominic, for those of uh, our readers slash listeners who are perhaps not yet familiar with your work, but soon will be, you occupy a kind of uh, double life as both an investor and comedian, which is, if not unusual, certainly uh, uncommon for for the average listener. I've always thought of markets as a bit of a, a tragic comic projection of the human condition with all our hubris and folly and fear, greed, envy and whatnot uh, projected up onto the markets. I'm wondering uh, if you feel that those twin hats that you wear are maybe not so delineated as as maybe most people might think. Well, it's a bizarre uh, situation that I find myself in. It's completely accidental. It's not something I planned. And uh, I think I am the world's only financial writer stroke comedian. There was I was once doing a show up in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Festival and um, some chap came up to me and said, I am your German rival. I am a German financial writer comedian. So there <laughs> might be a German guy who does it. So I, but but I, I, I don't know... I don't know who he is, I just, but, I, but he did come up and say hello. But so, but I think I might be the only one who does it in the English language, put it that way. And yeah, it's funny because while a lot of comedians tend to sort of veer slightly to the left in their, um, in their worldview, uh, you know, they would have been anti-Trump and anti-Brexit and all that kind of stuff. They, they might say that, but if you look at what they actually do, being a comedian, a stand-up comedian, is probably the single most libertarian existence that there is, um, because you don't get any government support. The the you you're only as good as your act. Your act is your sort of you you know you trawl your act around the country and hopefully eventually around the world and get better. And as you get better, you get better paid gigs. And you're acting entirely out of your own self-interest, but. It is in your interests at the same time to get on with everyone else. But, you know, the, the more you work at your act, the better your jokes get, the more people laugh, and then the, and the more pleasure they derive from watching you. And as a result of the pleasure they derive from watching you, the better gigs you get and the more money you earn. And, and there's no government, at, certainly at the grassroots level, there's no government um, intervention in live comedy. There's no subsidy. There's no... There's nothing. It's the only art form that survives without government subsidy. All things like opera and ballet require loads of subsidy and then um so so yeah it's a it's a it's a libertarian adam smith kind of existence <laughs> and then you actually talk to comics and and i go you know they go you're a financial writer and 
you know, loads of them are speculating in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And if you go, oh, I've got a really sexy junior mining company I'm looking at here, they all want to know what it is. Right. Um, and I think it's because they've all got a sort of speculative mindset. And so there's definitely, um, and, and, you know, the famous thing with traders, Jesse Livermore and famous traders, is that they're often prone to depression. You know, bouts mm-hmm. of elation and bouts of depression. And Jesse Livermore, of course, eventually killed himself. And, you know, that's the same existence of the comic. You know, they're famously um, happy one minute and sad the next. And so I do think there is a lot of crossover between the two worlds, um, albeit accidental. Yeah, it does seem that it, it, it's a kind of extreme expression, uh, as you mentioned, of those those highs and lows, those vicissitudes of life. And and just on the on the point of government subsidies, I, I've honestly can't imagine anything less funny than a government subsidized comic that's got to be just the bottom of the barrel surely well you i'll show you a government subsidized comic it's someone who's on the bbc (laughs) you know and you just look at the state of bbc comedy and it's dire and it used to be brilliant so what's what what's going on there because I, i you know we all grew up with with comedians and yeah many of them were you know sort of had left wing um, tendencies, but they were funny. And I'm just wondering what, you know, it's kind of like what happened to the anti-war left? What happened to the funny left? Now it seems that that comedians on the left are telling jokes more for applause than they are for laughter. Uh, well, yeah. And I'll tell you what that is, is I think comedian, to be a good comic, you've got to be canti- counterculture. You've got to be mm. irreverent. You've got to be against the status quo. You've got to mock the status quo. Zero Mostel used to say um, comedy is about exposing pomposity. And the left, that sort of, and, and by the way, I don't actually see the world through the prism of left and right. I see it more authoritarian versus libertarian. But mm-hmm. I think when we use the term left, we, we all know what we're talking about. And that sort of slightly authoritarian, we know better than you, left, that, that sort of technocratic mindset that dominates state planning and government and regulation and and the federal reserve bank and the bank of england and the civil service and it you know just dominates the entire establishment it dominates the cultural establishment as well and so you're by adopting that you know that worldview of you know trump stupid trump orange hair ho 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 you're just you're not doing anything countercultural they think they are because Trump is is the president and they're attacking the most powerful man in the country. And there is an argument for that. Um, but but really, Trump himself was countercultural in that he was so anti-establishment or anti the, the conventional way of doing things. And so, yeah, so the 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 irreverent, really funny anti-establishment voices are coming more from the right. They're coming from the libertarian um, angle than they are from from the establishment state planning world. Yeah, and to, just to speak to that uh, that establishment mindset, it does seem that on both sides uh, of the pond, two countries separated by a common language, as Mr. Wilde uh, <clears throat> observed, that there is this kind of um, surging sensorial impulse that you know is cracking down on culture across the board, and it seems like there's uh, you know there's a very one size fits all mentality to what you're allowed to think and it doesn't matter what the subject is whether it's you know whether it's a pandemic or a mandate or a, or you know a, a, a war um it, it, there's just this very sort of you know monotone mentality that we're allowed to express and that seems to be really kind of the antithesis of of comedy would you agree 
Yeah, a hundred percent. The standard the standard reaction to any worldview that you don't like is to try and get it cancelled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. it's a very and, childish uh, kind of. It is. Kind of it's r- like reaction. Um, why is why is the BBC giving so and so a platform? You know, right. and it, it's got so stupid. It's like anyone who's to the left of Bernie Sanders is a far right racist, and you're like, <laughs> it's 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 insane. And um, so, and it's some kind of mental illness. It's obviously been um, propagated by the Russians, you know, who are trying to spread dissent and disorder. I'm joking well, when I say that, but but the but but I do I do think at one stage they were trying to, you know, divide the right, and whether by accident or whether it's just by social media, um, or it was going to happen anyway. But yeah, the world is so divided. But the standard, you know, the standard libertarian thing is live and let live, but right. that doesn't apply to. Um, to the left, and there's no live and let live there. It's either agree with me or have your livelihood cut off. Yeah, which is really, uh, you know, you only have to go back sort of a generation or so, and that seems to me just utterly anathema to that kind of late 60s, you know, happy-go-lucky, you know, um, Berkeley free speech movement, you know, the hippies kind of getting their groove on whatever, whatever they happen to be into. I mean, they seem to be, uh, you know, demanding their own uh, civil liberties as far as obviously freedom of speech, freedom of what they wanted to put in their body. Goodness knows that has come full circle now. And, you know, they're very much anti-war, anti-establishment, anti-big corporation, anti-big government. And now it seems to be down the line, it's, it's, it's the total opposite. Well, I don't think, I, I just think there are loads of people who are libertarian and they do not realise it. And and so, yeah, that whole movement of, you know, peace, anti-war, live and let live, flowers, get back to nature, local rule, all that stuff that they stood for. And it was a brilliantly creative time artistically and especially musically. Um, it's just ended with more government. And, and, and they, they all find themselves now supporting, you know, the NHS, you know, state welfare, state... Um, mandates on climate change, all this big state stuff. And you're like, how did that happen? And I think there's this, this, this weird thing that they cannot understand that with, with less state and, and more individual responsibility, the result would be better welfare, better healthcare, better all these things. But they can't make that emotional leap to, to the point of, of, real, of, of trusting um, human beings to do the right thing. They're unable to do that. And so they think, all right, we, well, government must provide it. But the, so it's bizarre. So all those, that movement, it's just ended effectively in, in sort of light socialism or rather heavy socialism. Yeah, it is bizarre, isn't it, that we've, uh, that they've kind of uh, quashed competition and that, and that they're so allergic to, uh, I think it was Hayek who called it spontaneous order, uh, you know, which is where you take a, a kind of a, a leap of faith and, you know, you rely on the market to find, you know, nuanced and work around solutions to things like, uh, you know, central banks destroying our money and, uh, and you know, universal healthcare providers diminishing our, uh, our level of care and on and on down the line, look at education, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I wanted to ask you because I, I saw a couple of, you know, just segueing from from comedy to uh, the government's version of it. I did see a couple of your posts, which I, I found pretty amusing. And uh, we've seen just in the past couple of weeks, both the permanently startled uh, Nancy Pelosi and uh, Joe Biden saying that government spending, <laughs> I'll have to paraphrase them both here, but it's something like government spending is 
absolutely not to blame for inflation. Uh, presumably, they're they're laying that at the feet of the evil capitalists. Does does that kind of line make you laugh? Does it make you cry? Wince? All of the above? It's it's its own peculiar brand of comedy, I think. Well, I mean, it's it makes me do all of the above, and um, this is why I absolutely adore Bitcoin. I just think it's the most fantastic movement. I spent, you know, I think I discovered gold in 2005, 2006, and it was one of those sort of clarity moments that one has in one's life when as soon as I discovered gold, you, you, you uncover all the, you know, Austrian economic worldview, the libertarian, the small state, all the arguments for having an independent system of money and it keeps, you know, governments not being able to print money, keeps them in check and it's a, it's a, using independent money as a, a, a way by which the citizen can hold his government to account and all that stuff. And it was just suddenly so much about the world came clear to me, fundamentally, why houses are so ludicrously expensive in London. And, um, and you know, I, I spent many years trying to educate people. I wrote a film called Four Horsemen, which was an incredibly um, uh, popular film. It had something like nine million views on YouTube, something like that. And um, I wrote it with a guy called Ross Ashcroft, but most of the all the stuff in there about gold and fiat money and all that was all me. And I wrote a book called Life After the State and I wrote my weekly column and time and time again, I just saw it as my mission to educate people about the evils of fiat money. And every time you wrote the word fiat, you would have to, you know, you'd go fiat money, brackets, money which is money by decree or money which governments can print or whatever. You know, you'd have to define what mm -hmm. fiat money meant. And then along comes Bitcoin. And as well as being the most fantastically glorious speculative vehicle, if you're long, um, uh, particularly if you were long early on, um, it's also been the most brilliant educative tool. And it's just educated anyone. I mean, I I'm 52. And I suppose I first discovered Bitcoin, it would have been maybe 2012. So when I was in my early 40s. And I'd go to a Bitcoin conference. And in my early 40s, I'd be the oldest person there. And then right. I'd go to a gold conference and I'd be the youngest person there. <laughs> <laughs> the changing of the guard. <laughs> yeah. So it, it and, and and so I was sort of straddling and, and I'm in my early 50s now. So anyone born 1969, 1970, around about that kind of time is sort of on the cusp of the two two worlds. And I'm, you know, I'm not I'm 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 younger than a boomer, obviously. And so but you know. So the, the old guys all knew about gold and all that, but the, the the young, you know, they're all speculating in Bitcoin and then they're creating the memes and then they're all laughing at the memes and so on and so forth. And it's just been the most wonderful educative tool about the the natures of fiat money, inflation, all these things. And it's just brought these arguments into the mainstream while earning a lot of people a lot of money. And so... You know, everyone celebrates the glories of Bitcoin. Bitcoin fixes this. But one of the many fi things it fixes is is um, financial literacy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, I have a somewhat similar experience to you with, uh, with both gold and Bitcoin. I recall going to, uh, I'm down here in Argentina, as I mentioned uh, to you before the show, but I recall going to an Austrian economics um, conference uh, with some friends, uh, Jeffrey Tucker and and a few others who were, who were speaking there back in oh, it would have been 2012 or something. Was and that was that the one in Anarcapulco or was that the one in um, No, Turkey? this was this was in uh, Sao Paulo in in Brazil. Um, uh, okay, some some years ago, but yeah, the same kind of 
uh, kind of experience where I had been used to going to these kind of gold shows around the US where um, the my publisher at the time was holding uh, conferences and you would get people who were very, very well versed in, you know, Aristotle's five characteristics of a sound money and they knew all the ins and outs of gold and they knew, um, you know, they knew enough Latin to understand what, uh, you know, what by decree came from and what fiat meant and all the rest of it. Um, but they were having, you know, a bit of a kind of mental blockage with regards to Bitcoin. And then I went to uh, this conference in Sao Paulo and it was full of young kids. Uh, you know, I was around maybe 30, young 30s at the time, but it was full of kids in their early 30s and, and even in their 20s who were just, you know, talking up this new currency and really actually just asking the kinds of questions that I don't think people had really asked about the nature of money for, you know, maybe going back to Keynes's barbarous relic uh, comment, but certainly even, you know, some time before then where we just kind of took for granted that it was up to the state to manage our money for us and that the private market had no business entering that realm. And then all of a sudden, Bitcoin exploded in uh, in 2008. And yeah, we were invited to really question the foundational role of the state in producing money and, and maybe even address the question that, that had been addressed around uh, you know, maybe when the when the Gutenberg printing press came along originally, which is can we separate the church from the state? Now all of a sudden we were we were confronted with the proposition of potentially separating the money uh, from the state. Is that something similar to to the way that you grappled with it at, uh, in the early days? Yeah, uh, exactly. And uh, you know that's the mission: separate money and state. And there are people who still think the the pound and the dollar are backed by gold. They actually think it. They wow. can only print as much as they got gold and silver. And you're like, oh, please do me a favor. <laughs> um, but anyway, <laughs> I, I, I noticed just incidentally uh, that uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, Bitcoin and crypto money being used to purchase tanks and uh, jet fighters and you know, just just while we're on the on the roll of what the state uses its tax dollars and its untethered money to uh, to fund, uh, they will. Yeah. <laughs> when uh, when we get our little Bitcoin citadels and we need to defend them, we will have to buy some tanks and uh, we'll use Bitcoin to do it. Right. Right. Well, and they'll be this... sound tanks. They won't get they'll... caught in forty mile traffic jams in <laughs> Ukraine or whatever it is. Right. Oh, well, so, so moving on now, I've, I've read a couple of your, your recent articles. And again, that's the Flying Frisbee on Substack for, for people who want to check out Dominique's work. Um, it, we, you and some others uh, around this space have been observing, of course, that you know inflation is something that had been ticking up to, at least in the US, 40-year highs uh, before Mr. Putin even circled uh, invade Ukraine Day on his, on his calendar. Um, but it seems that since you know, in the past couple of weeks, since uh, the, the conflict in Eastern Europe has has kind of erupted, that everything that has been going wrong with Western economies is now being blamed on uh, the, the conflict in Ukraine, including not least of which some pretty extreme price action in the commodities markets. Uh, what's been your take on, for example, nickel going limit up across in the hundred thousand dollar a ton mark and doing us all a uh, uh an al gore shaped hockey stick uh, just last week i think and some other really kind of crazy price action in the commodities markets 
Well, that nickel chart was extraordinary. It's like nothing I've ever seen. It went up, I think it went up from 25000 to $100,000 in two days, which for, a, I mean, you know, it's not a cryptocurrency. It's a, it's a metal. <laughs> it's an essential basic metal. And for it to quadruple in a day is, is nuts. And it's... And I also happen to think that the, the, the London Metal Exchange's decision not to honour the contracts signals the end of the London Metals Exchange, you know, to mm-hmm. close the markets and not force the um, the dude in China to cough up. Even if he hasn't got the money, they have to do that if they had to maintain the integrity of the LME. But anyway, that's their own business. And, yeah, I mean, commodities have basically been in a bull market since the the big corona panic sell-off in in. March 2020, oil went to minus 30. And so if it went from minus 30 to 130. That's a $160 move. That's one heck of a trade right. <laughs> <laughs> if you bought the lows and sold the highs. Yep. And metals, you know, and the fundamental, this always happens with commodities, is that, you know, you get a five or 10 years of underinvestment. So there's a shortage of supply. There's a few cranks on the internet like me, you and Bill who go, uh, there's a shortage of supply in this metal. It should be trading much higher. Um, we quietly inform our readers. We take positions um, in mining companies and in metals and so on. And in, you know, I've been banging the drum about oil for goodness knows how long. And and then we just watch it go up. And and so commodities were all in a massive bull market. And what this war has done is given us the speculative blow off top. And. Now I'm looking at this, and we've, we've, as we speak today, oil's gone from 130 to about 95 bucks. You know, mm-hmm. it's had a $35 uh, sell-off in, what, three, four days? Yeah. Gold has gone from, you know, testing its old highs, 20, uh, 2070, around about there. That's sold off, and it's gone back to its previous old highs, 1920. So that's a $150 sell-off. Um but all the metals, you know, platinum, palladium, palladium's lost about a third of its value. And, you, you know, they're just so speculative. And I know I'm not suggesting that you got speculative bubbles under a gold standard, but you did. But they were nothing like they are now because everyone's losing leverage. And leverage is a, is a fiat money thing. All leverage is, is debt. And so you just got these mad speculative markets where everyone's speculating, wanting to get rich quick. It's all part of that sort of fiat money mindset. But I'm looking at commodities now and I'm going, was that the top? I think, it, you know, there's a really good chance. I put out two pieces last week and, you know, I both said the excess here feels like a top. It they kind That kind of excess marks a top. But then you look at the mm-hmm. fundamentals and you go, well, Russia supplies something like 17% of global global commodities and much higher, you know, 40% of European gas and, and um, I think it's 10% of world oil and, I can't remember what the number is for nickel, but it might be something like 20 or 30% of world nickel. You know, palladium, I think it supplies more than 50%. And, Mm. you know, you can substitute palladium to a certain extent with platinum, but not totally. And it's nuts that palladium should be more expensive than platinum in the first place. But anyway, anyway, so, so, and, and, you know, with all these sanctions coming, you know, the issue of, of, we haven't solved the the lack of investment in, in commodities, um, in a few weeks, there is still this fundamental problem of lack of investment, lack of exploration um, and all this. So all that makes me think, mm, um, we're not going to go that low, at least. Yeah. But, but I think, you know, the, the, the bubble blow off top that we've had and now the unwinding, this is all going to take a while to digest and unwind. So I'm not rushing to take, 
new commodities positions. But I do notice that in all of the insanity, gold miners um, didn't have the run-up that gold had. They had a bit of a run-up, but they, you know, gold led the miners. And ideally, you want miners to lead the metal, although I think those days might be gone because of all the various ways there are to own gold, you know, ETFs and 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 gold money and bullion vault and gold core and 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 futures and spread bets and all the there's so many different ways to own gold you just think why take on individual company risk and own a miner but and and nevertheless even with that disclaimer aside i'm i'm still quietly bullish about gold mining now there's so much dross in the sector of gold mining so many bad companies but you know, there are, uh, I've got two or three companies that I like that, uh, you know, can survive gold going back to 12.50 an ounce if it ever goes there. You know, they were set mm-hmm. up during a bear market with a bear market mentality, that awful bear market of 2013 to 2016. So, you know, if you can find the right gold miners, I think you can do well. And in fact, I, I recommended two, one in, in February, one in March, um, for my paid subscribers on Substack. And they're both higher than when they were, even with this massive correction wow, okay. we had. So <laughs> I'm like, whoa, look at me. I, I, I know what I'm doing. I mean, of course, you make tips and they don't always work out that well. But but so, but so I am quietly bullish about gold miners, um, and, as and long as they're you... well-run ones and not run by, by crooks or bozos. Right, and I'm afraid right. there's a lot of crooks and bozos. By bozos, I mean stupid people, and there are quite a few of them in gold mining. That's one of the things I admire about Bitcoin, by the way, is just there are just so many geniuses in the sector, young, enthusiastic, energetic geniuses at the height of their career-building years. And just by owning Bitcoin or, you know, owning five coins or one of those funds that you can buy that gives you, you know, the 10 best... um, DeFi coins or the 10 best metaverse coins, whatever it is, you're just getting exposure to that colossal intellect. Uh, And with gold mining, you know, it doesn't, there is just not the same intellect. I'm not saying there are not clever people in gold mining. There are, but there's not the same, It's there's not genius after genius after genius in the way that there is with all that computer stuff and Bitcoin. Yeah, and it does seem, uh, I mean, for those of us who have been around uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem, uh, for a little while now, and it, it really is is only a little while. It's only fourteen odd years old, but even just during during that short period of time, the amount of wealth that's been created for individuals, I've uh, witnessed a, a little bit of this myself. And the people that I've seen who have made, you know, who hung on for for de- held on for dear life, who hodled uh, early on and made some pretty sizable fortunes, I can't think of a single one of those people uh, that I know who you know, just sort of tooled off to a Caribbean island and put their feet up and did nothing for the next, you know, however many years and dropped off the map. Uh, All of those people uh, that I know have gone into other entrepreneurial, um, you know, pursuits. They've, They've started up clinics or they've you know they've branched out into into computronics or some other uh, disruptive industry where you know the, this is a generation of people who are you know often derided for kind of you know slacking off on the couch and uh, taking their gender studies degrees and you know just moving in a mum's basement but there is a portion of those people I think who are attracted to the the you know, all that the Bitcoin world kind of offers, part of what you were saying before about live and let live, perhaps. Uh, and those people, they, they seem to be the ones that are building the parallel economies uh, of tomorrow. Well, agreed. You know, I mean, you see it, the, the, the guy, 
I mean, I, we, I, I know loads of Bitcoiners. We, I started up a, a, a privacy tech company in in um, in Canada on listed on the CSE called Cypherpunk Holdings, and um, I approached. I was having lunch with John Matonis. He's been around for a long time. He's a formidable intellect, and he really doesn't need to work if he doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just showed him this privacy tech company that we were setting up, and he said, "Oh, I'd really like to get involved." And so John became a director. And and you know that's just an example of, you know, people don't want to stop just because they've made a lot of money. Richard Branson didn't stop it. You know, I've just bought one of the gold companies I recommended. The guy who's the CEO, or actually the president, not the CEO, um, has just sold another company for, and he's made something like 2,000 times his money. You know, he doesn't need to work again if he doesn't want to, but people like working and, and, you know, even into your retirement. My dad was a writer. He died at the age of 87 but, you know, two weeks before he died, he was still trying to, you know, he was still hustling and still trying to sell his plays. So right. we don't stop. Just just because government says you can stop when you're 60, <laughs> individuals don't necessarily do that. Well, that's, yeah, it's kind of a, it's a, a almost a kind of permissive off-ramp, isn't it? That work up and until the, work up until this high watermark and then just kick back for a little while. I, I find that the people who are more self-reliant and, uh, yeah, self-starting entrepreneurials, aren't looking for that permission to stop. They're it, quite the contrary. They're looking for people to get off their back so they can, so they can get going. So <clears throat> let, let me ask you then, uh, Dominique, because we've, we've seen, we've been through a few episodes with Bitcoin now with regards to, you know, it being, uh, to, to quote one of my favorite philosophers of the, the 20th century born in a crossfire hurricane as Mr. M- Mrs. Jagger's uh, Jagger Richards would have it. Uh, in 2008, it came onto the scene during the big, you know, the big uh, bailouts, and then obviously it kicked on higher in that uh, catalyzing moment of the Cyprus bail-ins. Uh, and we've seen a few kind of geopolitical events that have have you know set off or sparked new rallies. I was curious this time around, um, you know, with all that's going on with Russia and the Ukraine, it seemed like gold was. Uh, you know, performed in its traditional role of, uh, you know, kind of risk off um, safe haven. Uh, Bitcoin, not so much, perhaps because of just sort of regulatory uncertainty or I haven't checked the price today, but what what do you make of its kind of near-term response to that geopolitical uncertainty and where do you see it going perhaps over the medium medium term from here? Um, Well, firstly, on the subject of gold, Gold kind of did what it was supposed to, but now it's stopped doing what it's supposed to. You know, it's just sold <laughs> off $150 and it's done a massive double top. It's also done an island reversal, which is, you know, the chartists must be looking at gold and just shaking their head and crying. But um, <laughs> the, the you know, I, I love gold. Um, and you can make an argument about an asset. So I'm making this argument. I'm using the disclaimer first. I love gold. I own loads of gold. Um, if the world went back to some kind of de facto gold standard, you know, I, I wouldn't be an unhappy man. Um, but you can look at gold and you can get, you can make two arguments. You can go, well, in 1980, the value of America's gold holdings could have paid off its debt. And, the you know, the Jim Sinclair argument, the, the role of gold is to balance the books of the United States. And so if 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 the United States now were to pay off its debt with its gold, then the gold price would have to be whatever. I don't even know what the number is, $50,000 an ounce or something stupid, and probably more. Or you can look at gold and you can go, uh, well, actually, 
you know, it might have been money since, you know, gold was the very first metal that human beings used. We used it long before we used copper and we discovered smelting in the Bronze Age. You know, gold was the first metal we used. We discovered it in riverbeds when we were hunter-gatherers, Stone Age people, and we decorated ourselves with it and we gave it to other people and used it as reward. And we used it in barter. So it was the very, very first uh, money. You know, it's it's we it was the first metal we used, and we used it as money. Obviously, a less sophisticated form of money than what we have today, but it was its role was money. We used it to store wealth, display status, all that stuff. Um, and you know, probably twenty thousand years before we discovered smelting. So it's the oldest metal we've ever used. It's probably the oldest substance on Earth when it came in its supernovae collisions. And you can make all those arguments. It's been money for twenty, thirty thousand years longer. Um, why would it stop being money now? Well. The horse was transport for 20,000 years and the horse no longer is transport because we invented cars. So you could say about gold, it's as irrelevant to modern finance as the horse is to transport. And I see that argument. I don't entirely agree with it, but I can see it. And on the other hand, like I say, you could say, well, gold has to balance the United States, uh, the, the, the balance sheet of the United States. So, you know, it's up to you what argument you want to make at any given time. Um, and in a bear market, you'll find yourself making its irrelevant argument. And in a bull market, you'll find yourself <laughs> making it's going to balance the United States, the books <laughs> of the United States. But but anyway, and and the problem, you know, we, we do seem to be, I'm following all this Luke Groman stuff, and I'm quite interested about how this, you know, the, the East, the Eurasian countries, Asian countries are trying to go back to some kind of independent money system. And by the way, I've spent a long time auditing China's gold and working out how much they've got, how much they've mined over the last 15 years, how much they've imported, and how much falls into private hands and how much falls into state hands. And mm -hmm. China's gold holdings are bigger than the United States's. They're not declared as bigger. They're declared at 1,600-odd uh, tonnes to the United States, 8,000 tonnes. But in re reality, China's gold holdings are somewhere between 15,000 and 30,000 tonnes, in my opinion. So at least twice what the US has. And that's an astonishing fact when you think about the implications. Anyway, so that's gold. And in all probability, my sort of theory is it'll go up a bit and it'll go down a bit and it'll go up a bit and it'll go down a bit. And it'll probably end up in the mid to high 2000s by the time this is all over. So that's a bit of sort of sensible, rational view of gold. Um, Bitcoin, on the other hand, is is tech and it, it's as you probably know it's been tracking the nasdaq and it behaves like a tech stock now i i have of the mind that everyone should own some bitcoin everyone should have some exposure to it um you know it's the money of the future it's the cash system for the internet but it is not the opportunity that it once was and every double gets harder than the last and so to double from bitcoin from 50 cents to a dollar and you know it's only not even going to go up it's you know it would have been a hundred million dollars in market cap or something, but for Bitcoin to go from forty thousand dollars to eighty thousand dollars, it's at forty thousand now. To go to eighty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars, you know we're talking about trillions of dollars of market cap. That's a really difficult bubble, uh, a really difficult double to make. But at the same time, you look at the Bitcoin chart; it's made a double, triple bottom around the thirty thousand dollar area, and there are four sides phases to a Bitcoin cycle. There's the quiet accumulation phase. There's the noisy bull market and blow off top. There's the unruly, horrendous, noisy correction. And then there's the frustrating consolidation. And I would argue that at the moment in Bitcoin, we're probably in that frustrating consolidation phase, which sort of, you know, it has corrections in it. It's frustrating. 
But it looks like $30,000 is the low. And if, you know, if Russia can start World War Three and Bitcoin still holds up about thir- above $30,000, I'd say that's a pretty good sign. Um, but it's a frustrating and we're probably going in, we're probably without even knowing it in one of those quiet accumulation phases. Um, but it does trade like the NASDAQ. It, it seems to have got itself with the NASDAQ and risk on and risk off. Has the, NAS- the NASDAQ's is the NAT correction in the NASDAQ over? It was one almighty bubble. A lot of those stocks are down 50, 60, 70% now. Is that enough? It probably is. But I don't think we're set for another massive bull market just yet. I think we're still in for a bit of so-called frustrating consolidation. But frustrating consolidation is a good time for quiet accumulation. Yeah, very well said. Well said. And uh, I'm just thinking back to that. Uh, you, you kind of got me uh, scratching my head on the... Uh, on China's gold holdings, just as far as the implications for what a, you know, people like to talk about a new monetary world order or something of that nature, you know, what that looks like if you have, uh, as we have seen now, just in the past couple of weeks, I don't think people made a whole lot of noise about this, but I found it just extraordinary that uh, we had sanctions that were essentially cancelling the uh, foreign reserve currency assets of other sovereign nations, central banks. I mean, it, it was almost as if uh, the United States declared that all of the dollars uh, outside of its national borders are now uh, currency by permission and liable to be cancelled if 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 anybody you know misbehaves. I'm, I'm wondering just what the kind of what the follow-ons of that kind of uh, "Quote unquote permission-based money might be, and whether or not there might be a risk premium that other large holders like China of U.S. dollars might be now factoring into their future uh, purposes or, or or their appetite for future purpose purchases." Rather, yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure China will be looking at what's happened to Russia and mm-hmm. going, "Wow, we do not <laughs> want that to happen to us. We have yeah. got we, you know." So China's got 3 trillion dollars, bit more than 3 trillion dollars I think. Yeah. Um and its official gold holdings are like 2% of its of its forex reserves whereas America's gold holdings are like 70%. Now, if China came out and said, "Actually, we've got 15,000 tons of gold, 16,000 tons of gold. We've got twice as much gold as America has." You know, it would be almost a declaration of war. And mm. those it would, A, cause a massive um, spike in the gold price because people would go, oh, actually, gold isn't an irrelevant antiquated asset. It's it's the money of the future and China's going to back its yuan with it. And secondly, it would cause a huge sell-off in the United States dollar. And China doesn't want that. The way it's building its economy, it wants to keep its currency cheap um, and it doesn't want to destroy the value of its gold holdings. So... China's take as far as declaring its gold, it's it's declaring the minimum that it can declare and look credible. Right. Um, that's that's you know it's only my theory, but 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 it's it's it, until somebody comes up with a better one, I'm sticking with it. Yeah, no, and, mate. We're 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 all for uh, we're all for unsubstantiated <laughs> theories and scuttlebutt here. That's fantastic. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking but, of that also but, in the context with their uh, last year. Uh, um, putting the kibosh on um, crypto mining in China, and you know, there's an, there's there's certainly a, a chronology to all this. That if we were uh, conspiratorially inclined, we could we could build some kind of <laughs> completely unsupportable uh, scuttlebutt here. Well, yeah, but 
anyway, I, I completely agree. Sorry, somebody somebody is WhatsApping me as you talk and it's making a noise and I'm apologising if my mic picks it up. I'm just turning my WhatsApp off now. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's my theory on China's thing and, and it sounds like you're indulging it. So good, good stuff. Good stuff. And, <laughs> but I, if I was putting myself in China's thing, it, it's going to go, wow, look at how they've weaponized the dollar. We don't want that to happen to us at least not just yet. And nor is it, I don't think, going to invade Taiwan because, it, you know, it's just going to see how America's weaponized the, the um, dollar against Russia and go, well, they'll do that to us and we'll be screwed and Apple won't build all its um, tech here and it won't build its this and that and it'll, you know, we're just not ready for that. So I think China will just quietly uh, stay out of it and continue as much as it possibly can to de-dollarize itself um, until it is ready. And, uh, you know, th the, the weaponization of the US dollar, I would argue, is, has probably worked because all the oligarchs, surely they're going to be really hacked off with Putin and they're going to want their money back. And so there's going to be so much internal pressure on Putin. Um, I mean, yeah, the likelihood is, is it's going to drag on. This whole thing's just going to drag on. But I, I imagine China will just stay out of it for the time being. And we're going to have this sort of five, ten-year war in Ukraine, which will be not unlike the war in Afghanistan, which eventually brought down the Soviet Union. It'll probably do the same to Putin eventually. Um, so, it'll, But it will happen quicker because everything happens quicker now. So it, I doubt it'll take ten years, but it, it could take three or four or five. But, yeah, so China... Is going to do all this stuff, but it's not going to do it yet. And it, but it will have watched what America did, how it weaponized the dollar, and thought we're not going to allow that to happen to us. Yeah, not. With, and they will be with. taking, preparing, and taking the right precautions. And part of those precautions will involve gold. Yeah, I, I can't imagine them uh, risking three plus trillion dollars of foreign currency reserves and however much gold they've got. Uh, it's twenty years of savings. Yep, there 20 you go. years of savings and investment. They're not going to that's throw big, it away tomorrow. That's a big piggy bank, big piggy bank. Mate, yeah. um, I really appreciate um, just looking at the clock here, and I know uh, we're, we're ticking up on, on an hour here. I really appreciate you taking the time. I wanted to just move on real quick before we uh, before we end it for this particular show, and hopefully we get to have you back uh, in the future. Um, but I'm planning at some point this year to hopefully take my young family up to... Uh, to the UK. So I wanted to just touch on uh, a little bit about how travel is going and whether things are getting back to normal. It's it's interesting that when we, you and I first started emailing to schedule this podcast a few weeks ago, COVID would have been pretty much front and center, I would suspect, of our conversation. And yet here we are two or three weeks later. What happened to COVID? Where did it go? And uh, are we able to travel to the UK yet? Am I going to be able to get a, well, a pint of your famously warm beer or we, what? I think it was Milton Friedman said that the art of politics is getting the wrong people to do the right things. And we had a situation in December where we were about to lock down again when this uh, 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 Omicron, uh, uh, Omicron, however you pronounce it, Omicron is actually the correct pronunciation, but everyone says Omicron. But anyway, when this Omicron variant broke in, I guess it was early December, late November, there was a huge pressure to lock down again. And Boris Johnson was about to lock down, you know, under the advice of all his... Uh, his wise, uh, they're actually called sage, but his wise government advisors, <laughs> medical advisors, and all the backbenchers from the Conservative Party said, no, if you uh, 
lock down the economy again, we're going to do a vote of no confidence in you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, he, so he massively backpedaled and mm. um, didn't lock down when the rest of Europe pretty much did lock down. And then our COVID rates, like Omicron was pretty much the best thing that could have happened in terms of COVID because it was massively infectious and yep. and very, very mild. So in terms of building up natural antibodies and all the rest of it, it was literally the best thing that could happen. Um, and so that happened and we let it run riot and the rest, we our, our infection rate was no higher or lower than anywhere else, not significantly so, and nor was our death rate, nor was anything else. And yet we had a relatively normal Christmas. And then we opened up and, you know, governments have got no imagination. They're not bold. They're all thinking about career risk. So if somebody else does it, then it's okay to do it. But if you're the pioneer, then they don't want to do it. That's the sort of technocratic mindset. It's the opposite yeah. of being an entrepreneur. And the rest of Europe started to look at England, which didn't lock down. And then they gradually started copying us. And I think Switzerland a couple of weeks ago decided, screw this, we're opening up. And so mm -hmm. I went to... Um, Switzerland skiing. Well, I actually went to France skiing, but I went via Geneva a couple of weeks last week. And um, I didn't get asked. I didn't, I, I think in one restaurant in France, I got asked for a, for a COVID pass, you know, and I had COVID a few months ago. So I had the, the COVID pass, you know, mm -hmm. and um, on my phone. And, but apart from that, I don't think I got asked once. And then the only time I did get asked, bizarrely, was getting on the plane in Geneva, coming back to England, and I and they, they want this <laughs> want you to do this passenger locator form or something, and so I just filled that in, and it was a bit of a palaver in the airport. But anyway, the short of it is, I was able to go to Geneva, and then from Geneva to drive across the border into France, and then have a week skiing in two different resorts in France, and then come back to Geneva. It wasn't quite as relaxed as it was before COVID, but it was significantly less. It was significantly less relaxed than it was. You know, you had to wear your mask on the plane and stuff like that. But mm. but compared to what it was, you know, six months or something ago, it's yeah, we're in a much better place. And you just assume everywhere else will follow. I just think we've got COVID fatigue now and everyone's just like, well, we're going to have to live with it. And I'm sort of hoping gradually, quietly, while everyone's eyes are on Ukraine, all the laws will be largely relaxed and, and sort of all the various hypocrisies will be quietly brushed under the carpet and we can just sort of move on and get vaguely back to normal. It's never going to be quite what it was, but, but you know, there's always going to be this unfortunate precedent that's been set and, and you know, every crisis government um, intervention increases and it never quite goes in taxation, everything increases and it never goes back to where it was before the crisis started. But hopefully we're sort of stumbling back to some kind of uh, freedom. And I use that word, you know, relative freedom. Let's put it that yeah. way. A, a big asterisk. But, yeah, it does, it yeah. does <laughs> seem, hopefully, that uh, that the dominoes are falling. And, and as you say, they're, they're backpedalling on this as politicians do, which is to say quietly and, well, hopefully attention is distracted elsewhere. But, um, mate, look, thank you very much for your time. Do, do let us know, uh, let our readers and, and listeners know what you've got coming up. Uh, I mentioned uh, the Flying Frisbee on Substack where they can check out your articles. Uh, I know you're, you know, you're often performing in, uh, is it Comedy Unleashed? Is that the one? Is that the? Yeah, I do a lot of stuff with them, yeah. Okay. Um, I am nothing if not prolific and uh, I, I have a large output and some people prefer me wearing my financial hat 
and some people prefer me wearing my comic songwriter hat. And if you want the financial stuff, I would urge you to go to the Flying Frisbee, or which is just frisbee.substack.com and sign up for my newsletter there. I've only been doing it for two weeks, but it's been going great guns. I can't believe how popular it's been, how quickly it's become so popular. Substack is just fantastic. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I can, I've literally, within two weeks, if I want to, I can go and become a digital nomad and I don't need to be in the UK anymore just from two weeks on Substack. It's a highly um, recommended actually, lifestyle, by the way. <laughs> oh my, yeah. Well, I mean, I've just got to do it, or maybe not. Maybe, maybe I've been on it a month now. I might be slightly exaggerating, but you know, hey, it's the media we're allowed to. Um, exactly. And then, but if you want me wearing my comedy songs, um, go to dominicfrisbee.com and you can sign up for a newsletter there. But I'm, if you're in the UK, I'm doing a gig on March the thirtieth this month at Comedy Unleashed in Bethnal Green. Uh, two hours of unacceptable. Uh, songs and among other things we'll be singing the libertarian national anthem and if you like um joel you can download the libertarian national anthem off youtube and you could end this podcast with it i can think of no better way to end the podcast than with the national anthem of libertaria that's like fantastic you've 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 come with your own plug mate that's actually that's fantastic (laughs) you're doing my work for me wonderful mate thank you so much again for for taking the time uh yeah listeners uh Tune in for some eminently cancelable comedy with Dominic Frisbee and check out his Substack. And tune in again next week for your next episode of the Fatal Conceits podcast. I'm Joel Berman, your host. Talk to you again next week. Arise, libertarians, above totalitarians. Our guide is the mighty invisible hand. Reject state controllers, collectors and patrollers Our choices are better than government plans Taxation is a form of theft Free markets and free trade are best Free speech, free movement, free minds and free choice. Our actions are all voluntary, not coerced or compulsory. What we abhor, socialism does not work. No debt or inflation, no self. No pigs in the trough at the gravy to drink. No state education to brainwash our nation. No experts dictate what to do, what to think. We scorn your fiat currency.
for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.